Bookcraft is pleased to present three parables for our time by Dr. Truman G. Madsen. This recording, part of the series Jesus of Nazareth, was made on location in Israel. Because of the nature of the recording locations, background sounds may be frequently heard during the recording. When Elijah R. Snow first came to the Galilee, she wrote a poem, and the last stanza is the following. There is a depth in the soul that's beyond the reach of all earthly sound, of all human speech. The river too pure and sacred to chime with the cold, dull music of earth and time, seeking for some inspiration. I've been asked to speak with you about three of the parables of the Master. Parables for our time. Parables for us now. And how do we know that? Well, not just because on careful reading one can extrapolate to our situation, but because the same one who gave them, the Lord Jesus Christ, has spoken again and has lifted, as it were, a corner of the veil to let us see some of the deeper meaning of these, on the surface, very simple stories. Uh, I begin with the parable of the wheat and the tares. You've all seen by now what is done with the fields after harvest. They are uh, as stubble. They burn the fields. That's after there has been a harvest and after the wheat is separated from the chaff. But after also, it has come to dominate the field over the tares. And what are the tares? Some think that word refers to what is known as darnel grass, which grows alongside of the wheat and is a weed, but looks until the time when the ear forms very much like wheat. Now you ask, but who would, uh, who would sow wheat and then after that sow tares? Well, the parable says, and Jesus' later interpretation, the tares are sown by the enemy, by the adversary. Uh, that's after the initial sowing. What happens? Well, for a time you cannot tell the difference. And the initial strategy would be to pluck up the weeds. But no, the word is given, no. The blade is yet tender. Let them grow together. And then in due time, you can reap down the fields. Section 86 of our Doctrine and Covenants is in a way three things. It's a patriarchal blessing to the youth of this time. It is a specific statement on what he had in mind in this parable. 
and then it adds insights that relate to the life and the priesthood of the modern kingdom of God. In that account, what we are taught is that the church itself was the wheat, but that shortly after the death of the apostles, the tares were sown to the point that the church was driven into the wilderness. Now in modern times, and now it shifts from an account of the church to the people of the church, the blade is tender and the angels, it says, are waiting to reap down the fields, but are told, wait, postpone that, until what? Well, until the last minute is the feeling. And then comes this admonition from the Lord to us. Therefore, blessed are ye with whom the priesthood has continued through the lineage of your fathers, and one could add mothers. For ye are lawful heirs according to the flesh and have been hid from the world with Christ in God. What does it mean, hid from the world with Christ in God? Well, indulge me in two statements from our earlier prophets, paraphrasing a statement of Wilfred Woodruff. The Lord has reserved a small number of choice spirits and held them in the spirit world and reserved them and the implication is trained them for at least six thousand years the plausible length of time thus far in this world since Adam to come forth in the last days to receive the truth, to receive the new and everlasting covenant, to receive and honor the priesthood, to build up the kingdom of God, to prepare for the second coming of Jesus Christ. Brigham Young said the same thing in a different way. Some of the brightest spirits out of all the creations of God are making their appearance among this people. All the creations of God. How many are they? Well, in Latter-day Saint scripture, worlds without number have I created. And the inhabitants, that's many of them, are begotten sons and daughters unto God. Out of all those creations, some of the brightest spirits coming into this world. That's what he is teaching. If there were one billion Latter-day Saints, and there aren't, that would still be one one-hundredth of the billions who have lived or about to live on this earth. That's just a little tiny percentage of one percent now in the kingdom. And yet, they, and I really want to say you, are part of the leaven in the midst, as Orson F. Whitney once said, in, in the midst of 
Ferrite tares, or those who haven't yet become wheat, that captain these may be. You reserve your best, if we're talking in battle terms, for the last and crucial battle. We're entering it. People ask me, is the world getting better or worse? The monosyllabic answer, yes. It is getting better and worse. The wheat is getting wheatier and the tares are getting terrier. <laughs> and ultimately, we are taught by our modern prophets, there will be no between. One will either have enlisted to commit, serve, and love the living God, or one will be numbered with the opposition. That's not quite true. There still will remain many in the earth who do not have sufficient light either unto great blessings or unto great condemnation. And it shall be tolerable for them, we are taught. But as for you, you come out of that lawful airship and you are accountable in ways no one else on the planet right now is. It goes on to say, Therefore, blessed are ye, if ye continue in my goodness. That implies that you're not beginning in his goodness now. You have been in it. A light unto the Gentiles, meaning all others who are still searching and seeking. And through this priesthood, a Savior unto my people Israel. That's who you are. The Saver and the Savior, ultimately, in the name of the Savior of all mankind. So now we shift to a parable and an incident. Learn, he says, the parable of the fig tree. The narrative tells of Jesus walking from Bethany over the Mount of Olives to the city Jerusalem. That is not an easy walk. That's a climb, a steep climb. And if, as is the case, fig trees with leaves were apparent as he walked, that suggests not just early spring, but early summer. The summer is nigh when the fig tree leaves. So it would have been hot there are some who think it might have been a day comparable to what is now called the Hamsin. Terrible heat from the desert, from the east, in a kind of temperature inversion. And that maybe Jesus' behavior on that day reflected the fact that he was literally dehydrated and almost out of his mind under the beating sun and therefore was a little hard on the tree. Well, that's one explanation. But as he approached, in the distance, he sees the leaves. And it is the case, at least with some fig trees, that what first appears are the lumps, the buds of figs, and then shortly leaves. If there are leaves, there must be fruit. So he expected, anticipated fruit. And in those days, the figs were a source of supply, both in terms of food and even some moisture. 
some drink. And, uh, he's ready for that. But when he gets to the tree, the King James Version says he found no fruit. But you could wonder if he looked hard enough. The Joseph Smith translation adds, there was no fruit, period. And what did he do? A strange thing. One account is simply a statement, bear no fruit forever. Another says he cursed the tree. The two accounts differ again on how soon the effect. One implies that almost instantly the tree withered. The other, it's the next morning when they return and Peter notices that it's now withered all the way to the root. Now is that a proper thing to do to an innocent fig tree? Well, may I suggest two comments. What was happening is that a tree was, shall I say it so crudely, advertising its fruitfulness. The tree, by its leaves, was proclaiming, come, I am fruitful. But that was a deception. It didn't have a single fig. It was a pretense. And if, as so often is the case in Scripture, the tree stands for mankind, then what is being taught clearly is that pretending is not enough, that leaves are not enough. The whole point of being a tree is to bring forth fruit. It even says uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, what about a tree? Men do not gather grapes of thorns, nor figs of thistles. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit will be hewn down and cast into the fire. That's the same thing John says in preparing for Jesus. The axe is laid at the root of the tree. A fruitless tree cumbers the ground. And so Jesus has a parable of a husbandman who uh, is caring for the growth of his trees, comes three years in a row, never finds any fruit on a given tree, and says to the dresser of the garden, why is this tree still here? Take it away, it cumbers the ground. And he says, give me another year. I will cultivate it. I will fertilize it. I will care for it. And I believe the person reflected in that detail is Christ himself who is pleading with the Lord and against even the will of the angels. No, wait, wait, give me another year. Let me try. But the time may come. This is the hard side of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The time may come in our lives if we have sought to be a law unto ourselves, to pretend only, when, as he says in modern revelation, we cannot be sanctified. Not by mercy, not by justice, not by judgment. And he adds, therefore, they, we, must remain 
unfruitful. There's a harsher word, filthy, still. Well, how does one know whether one is fruitful? The Apostle Paul has a glimpse. He speaks of the fruits of the Spirit and names some. They are inevitable results of being genuinely born anew or afresh through the Lord Jesus Christ. They are the signs, if you will, of true discipleship. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, faith. That may not be all of them. But if none of those are surging in our lives, something is amiss. We are not planted properly. Again, in modern revelation, he rebukes a group and then says to them that the following condition is the way you know. All those, he says, among them who know their hearts are honest and their spirits contrite, and are willing to observe their covenants by sacrifice. Yea, every sacrifice which I, the Lord, shall command, they are accepted of me. Now listen, for I, the Lord, will cause them to bring forth as a fruitful tree which is planted in a goodly land by a pure stream that bringeth forth much precious fruit. The next verse of that very revelation commands an incredible, unprecedented sacrifice, namely to build a temple from scratch in their poverty. And shortly after that, they were commanded for another, and shortly after that, others. And that may be why Eliza R. Snow once answered someone who said, well, you know, there are hypocrites among us. And she said, well, sooner or later, we will all be asked to make a sacrifice. Hypocrisy will then avail little. You either make it, or you don't. And then it's no longer of any avail to pretend. Now I turn to the third one, which is filled with meanings. Scholars tend to distinguish a parable from an allegory, because usually a parable is designed to make one main point, whereas an allegory goes through a whole series of things, and each of them may have significance. But this one, if that distinction is true, is more like an allegory. I'm talking about the parable of the olive lamps or of the ten virgins, five foolish, five wise. In Matthew 25, I suggest we look at the exact language for just a moment. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. All through the New Testament, there is talk of the bridegroom coming. I've seen a study called Wedding Symbolism in the New Testament. When Jesus wants to describe the kind of blessedness that will come in the future reunion of the human family, he uses the wedding as his example. The bride and the bridegroom. The church is to be adorned as a bride, and the bridegroom is going to come.
to the bride. There will be a messianic banquet or feast. The faithful will be invited to it. A glorious celebration. Nothing in the Middle East is any more a celebration than a wedding. Sometimes a whole month of preparation and of festivities attend the wedding. In all the Semitic cultures, not just Jewish, what does that tell us? Well, for one thing, from the Latter-day Saint point of view, <laughs> Jesus seemed to be in favor of marriage. Say, so, well, he just uses it as an example. No, he uses it as a truth, which, yes, has all kinds of significance for the church, but also is the high point, often, of his teaching. So, five of them were wise and five foolish. The foolish took their lamps, but no oil with them. Now, they may have had some oil in the lamp, but what it's saying is they didn't have the little pitcher to refill the lamp. 